Acts chapter 2. Would you turn in there in your Bibles? If you don't have one, uh, the blue Bibles under the row in front of you are available, and you can find Acts 2 on page 771. Just last Sunday, we kicked off this new sermon series on the book of Acts, and uh, we said it's a sequel. It's part two of Luke, the author's writings, uh, part one being the gospel of Luke. In the very first part of uh, the very first verse of part two, which is Acts chapter one, verse one, Luke says that in his former book, he wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And we noted that now that Jesus is back at the right hand of the Father, how is it that he's continuing to do and to teach? He's gone. He's physically ascended to heaven. The book of Acts is the answer. Jesus is still present, actively directing the affairs of his creation and working redemption. And I pointed to this sermon graphic as uh, the stage of human history with Jesus in the director's chair not physically present, because his spirit is at work. And we are the actors. We are the ones that are tasked with continuing to do and to teach all about Jesus. That's our highest calling. That's our fundamental purpose. That is our greatest mission in life. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus tells his disciples, stay in Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit to come because their, their best efforts, their greatest projects, their sharpest minds mean nothing if they are not empowered by, undergirded by spirit power. Well, here he comes in wind and fire. Acts chapter 2. Listen carefully. These are God's words. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to uh, speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, They have had too much wine. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, as we unpack the riches of Acts, we're immediately confronted by this world-changing, history-defining chapter, and we pray that today and for the next couple of Sundays, you would open our minds, that you would enable us to see and marvel 
and declare the wonders of our God just as the first century disciples did. Only possible if you fill us with your spirit. So come, Holy Spirit, fill us in this place. Empower us to do and to teach just as Jesus began. We pray in his name. Amen. Pentecost is a Greek word that simply means 50th. And it's the 50th day after the Passover feast. These are two of the major feasts in, uh, in the Jewish community. Pentecost was a, a Jewish harvest festival that commemorated the giving of the law at Mount Sinai through Moses to his people. And so here we have the, the scene from the book of Exodus, the Passover event, God's miraculous means of freeing the Israelites from slavery to Egypt. The Passover was the 10th plague that broke the hand of Egypt, and that's the redeeming, saving event. They leave Egypt. Fifty days later, they arrive at the foot of Mount Sinai, where God gives Moses the law. And here's the picture we need to see. God never merely saves his people and then just leaves us alone, as if canceling debt and leaving us bankrupt were his full intent, his full purpose for us. He doesn't say go off and, and uh, be free of debt and not be penniless. He saves and then he grants a gift. Uh, and, and in particular, he shows us the way of life. So having redeemed Israel from slavery to Egypt through the Passover event, he brings them into the wilderness and now he shows them through the law, including the Ten Commandments, how to live a most fulfilling human life. So in the New Testament, which fulfills the old, Jesus is the, the ultimate Passover lamb. He's the perfect sacrifice. We no longer engage in that ritual because Jesus brought it all to completion. And then if you were to ask, what would that true way of life look like for a person saved through faith in Jesus Christ? What does it mean now for the, the believer who has been rescued from slavery, not now to Egypt, but from sin, uh, from, from um, yeah, slavery to sin? What, what does it look like now to live in freedom? The answer comes at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. The answer is, you're, you're not merely saved through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. God intends for you to uh, live this most fulfilling way of life, and that way of life is defined by the filling of the power of the Holy Spirit in the believer. At this harvest festival, Pentecost, a new Pentecost, the Holy Spirit has come to harvest what Jesus sowed in his death. Just two things that we're going to look at this morning. The Spirit's coming in power, and then the Spirit's filling us in humility. The Spirit's coming in power. Uh, back in John chapter 3, Jesus has this encounter with a Pharisee named Nicodemus, and he's, and he's telling him things about new life, new birth, and he mentions the Holy Spirit. And this is what he says to Nicodemus. The, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. But when the day of Pentecost comes, with the disciples gathered together, waiting, just as Jesus had instructed them. This isn't a gentle, cool breeze 
flowing through an open window. This is the power of a nor'easter bearing down on that particular place where the disciples had gathered. Verse 2 tells us uh, of a violent or a, a mighty rushing wind, another translation puts it, filling the whole house. And then in verse 3, they see what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each person. Why wind and fire? Four of the classical elements. Uh, first, the, the word for spirit in the Bible can also be translated breath or wind. This is the breath of God giving life. Uh, the breath of God is associated with creation or renewal. And so we find in Psalm 33, verse 16, the psalmist writes, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. This is the work of the Spirit, um, animating things, um, breathing life into a shell of a physical body so that body and soul constitute humanity so the spirit's breath here the spirit's wind is a sign that renewal is about to happen new life is coming fire in the bible is a symbol of his presence just as in the wilderness when israel was as moving towards canaan the promised land a pillar of fire accompanied them guided them by night pentecost brings god's empowering presence among his people permanently dwelling within believers through his Holy Spirit. I think there's another reason we have two signs of wind and fire. Wind is general. Fire here is specific. Not always, but in this context. What do I mean by wind is general? It fills the whole house. Uh, nobody has more wind than another person. It's, just, it's around. You, you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's blowing, Jesus says to, to Nicodemus. And so renewal has this cosmic dimension that affects creation and culture and all peoples without distinction but fire is specific there's a, a separate tongue of fire or at least the appearance of it that comes and rests on each person because the spirit's empowering presence does something unique in and through each person this is what paul says in first uh, corinthians chapter 12 he says this, there are different kinds of gifts with the same spirit. There are different kinds of service with the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them and all men. Now to each one, the manifestation of the spirit is given for the common good. We have unity and diversity here. We have the general and the specific. Same spirit, same God working in everybody. Different gifts, but all for the common good. Unity and diversity going back and forth. Here, here in, in, back in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, Luke shows us the substance of what's going on, not just the sign or the symbol. He says in verse 4, All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or other languages. This is important here. Being filled with the Spirit, finally uh, after waiting, receiving the power of God within them. The power of the Spirit doesn't result in some kind of um, magic show, some kind of supernatural display. The first filling of Spirit power in Christ's followers leads to evangelism by speaking the Word of God. Nothing more sensational than that. 
It's proclamation. It's preaching. We know this was an unintelligible babble because verse 11 says that the crowd was marveling. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. How is this? They're, they're hearing things of the Creator and the Savior. Christianity isn't about transcendent experiences. God might bring some, but it's not about that. Christianity isn't about subjective feelings. Um, I, I've heard people say, you know, I like to think of God as... That's no more than uh, a figment of your imagination. You're, you're wishful thinking. You're, you're projecting upon some idea called G-O-D, your own reality. It's really nothing. The Bible never describes God as some sort of personalized deity made in our image. In contrast, we are made in his image. He has always been, and we are the created ones. No, Christianity in contrast to all of that, is based on the revelation of the one true God to his people. He tells us who he is. He tells us how he has acted and will act in history. He makes promises to us. And when we receive the power of this God through the gift of his Holy Spirit, the third person in the Trinity, the main impact it has is to compel us to speak about him. You will be my witnesses, Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8 when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And here we have the very first instance. Spirit-filling, followers of Christ witnessing, pointing to the Savior. What we see here is no less than the fulfillment of a 2,000-year-old promise. Imagine waiting that long. So back in Genesis chapter 11, at the Tower of Babel, Humanity was striving to reach to the heavens and make a name for themselves, to be like God. And God interrupts that endeavor by confusing their languages and scattering them to the ends of the earth. Many nations are formed. And because sin affects everything, we can say that um, because of these differences now, cultural barriers were raised, racial prejudices were developed, and animosity uh, ever since then uh, between people groups uh, even to this day, of course, uh, is unfortunately an ugly uh, reality. Next chapter, Genesis 12. Everything changes. Out of all nations, God decides to raise up a man to form a new nation. His name is Abraham. And God makes these grand promises to Abraham, including this. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. There is a missional mandate here. There is a missional promise going on. All peoples on earth, all nations, all kinds of people will be blessed through you. 2,000 years later, roughly, through the ultimate descendant of Abraham, Jesus of Nazareth, and the giving of his spirit, the curse of Babel is reversed. Instead of unintelligibility, people unable to understand each other, there is miraculous intelligibility. Because people from every nation under heaven... The, the known world, at least, of the Roman Empire are represented because they've gathered for this Jewish feast. Pilgrims have come, and Babel is reversed. And not only that, but God's promise to Abraham is beginning to be fulfilled because the word of God, this, this promise, this um, invitation to, be, to experience the ultimate blessing through the Savior, Jesus, is going out to all the nations. God is present among his people 
fire. And he's bringing to a climax his plan to renew all things, wind. Here's another thing I love about this scene in Acts chapter 2. This is the birth of the New Testament church. This is the first worship service, if you will. This is the first sermon, we'll look at that next week, that the Apostle Peter preaches in the New Testament church. And what is it but a multi-ethnic, multicultural gathering? No people group has a lock on the gospel. It's not a Western religion. It belongs to all peoples. Differences are set aside in the interest of unity in Christ because the gospel is a reconciling power. It reconciles us as enemies to God in our sin, and it reconciles us to one another. Our differences melt away. And praise God, by his grace, he's given us uh, an approximation of reconciling power with a multi-ethnic church. It's something that we treasure as Grace Redeemer Church. It's, it's a picture of what God will do in perfection and glory. When people from every tribe and language and people and nation are gathered around the throne praising him. And I wonder if he will give us a gift of praising him in other languages other than our native one. That would be awesome. The gospel belongs to all nations. And it is our job, it is our calling, it is our highest purpose to continue to do and to teach what Jesus began to make sure the wonders of God are proclaimed to all the nations. You know what? Come on February 27th, 28th, and March 1, because the missions conference is going to equip you a little bit better to participate in this, your highest calling. Secondly, the Spirit's filling in humility. If we look at this phenomenon on Pentecost, spirit coming among the disciples, isn't the natural question to ask, how do I get in on that? You don't have to be a follower of Christ to long for more divine power or more divine presence. If you have a sense of God or spirituality, how do I get filled with this kind of Holy Spirit power? Listen to what the disciples are doing. Listen to the key. Listen to the, the, um, the special technique that they engaged in to invoke the coming of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 1, verse 14. It's not up there. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. They all joined together constantly in prayer. That's it. You're looking for a secret? Access divine power? You want the presence of God? Not only by you, but in you, they all join together constantly in prayer. God, Jesus had said, wait in Jerusalem, stay there, don't do anything. But it wasn't this passive, you know, eight-year-old on the stoop, waiting, bored, doing nothing. Maybe somebody will come and play with me, kind of waiting. It was active, it was engaged, um, when the Bible talks about waiting on God, there's this um, uh, active, trusting, depending, prayerful attitude that always accompanies it. It wasn't some special technique. It wasn't some special, especially deserving skill or uh, knowledge some formula to invoke the power of the Holy Spirit. It was intentional, focused, 
prayer that only comes from a humble, dependent, God-exalting heart. An attitude that says, God, you have everything that I need, and because you're a perfect father, I trust you to provide it. And so I'm waiting. And while I wait, I continue to ask. Imagine a, a, a two-year-old who is instructed to wait, who, who receives a promise, uh, who receives a promise uh, for which she's waiting, but she doesn't, because she's two, she doesn't just sit there and do nothing. She doesn't just fold her hands on her lap and sit on the step and wait patiently. She asks, is it time yet? Can I have my cookie now? Please, Daddy? Can we go? Not yet, honey, might be the answer. So she waits. There's this implicit trust that Daddy would never say, I can have a cookie or we can go to the park and not um, deliver on that promise. She, she waits with eager anticipation, of course, sometimes impatience mixed in, but always in relationship. Please, Daddy, can we go now? Can I have it now? Maybe you're waiting for something. Maybe it's an answer that would impact the path of your career. Maybe you're waiting for someone special to come into your life. Maybe you're waiting for a resolution of a problem that just has you stuck and you don't know how to get past this. Whatever it is, that waiting should be active with prayer, not this sort of, you know, I ask God and I don't know what's going on. I'll just sit here and do nothing until he delivers. That's not a call to faithful discipleship. Um, what we tend to do is we kind of put in our order with God as if we're, you know, um, ordering at the deli. And then we go about our business and we expect the divine delivery to simply show up as an answer to our prayer. The two-year-old illustrates something that is very fundamental about a relationship of faith filled with the power of the Spirit. Relationship, trusting, um, active waiting is a picture of Christian discipleship. Luke chapter 11, the disciples say to Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. You know, they could have said, and uh, maybe I would have said, teach me how to do ministry. Teach me how to counsel better, God. Teach me how to be a better leader. I'm so glad the disciples, perhaps unwittingly, um, said, teach us how to trust you. Teach us how to depend on you. Teach us how to draw on your strength to access your power. It's a good request. And so Jesus gives them the Lord's Prayer. And he finishes his answer with this. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Do you see this natural link between prayer and and, and what always accompanies real biblical prayer, humility, dependence, a trust that God has what I need. You, you see this link between prayer and spirit filling. They go hand in hand. You want more Holy Spirit? Look at your prayer life. Why aren't we filled with the Holy Spirit as much as we should? Underneath prayer, here's the main reason. Self-reliance is the most effective way to stifle the Spirit's work. 
Self-reliance is the most effective way to stifle the Spirit's work. It, um, author and pastor J.D. Greer uh, puts it this way. You will never be full of the Spirit so long as you are full of yourself. If I, if I were a guy who, who got tats on me, I think I'd have to just put that right here. Reminder. Indelible ink. You will never be full of the Spirit so long as you are full of yourself. Is that an arrow to your heart like it is to mine? Diagnostic question. What area of your life do you feel good about? What would you say if someone pressed you to say, you know, what, what, what skills do you have? What, what are you really good at? Um, or, or if a, uh, somebody who was really delving deep was trying to get at your sense of identity, what, what do you look for in terms of affirmation? You know, what, what do people say? Wow, you're, you're awesome. I love that. Whatever it is, you, you know what? If you only live within your competence and strength, you are not as likely to experience the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying give up pursuit of excellence. I'm not saying glorify in your failure and go looking for more. All I'm saying is, wherever in your life you think you have a sense of strong competence about which you'd say, I got this, no problem, that's me you're far less likely to experience spirit power in that area of your life. Because self-reliance is the most effective way to stifle the spirit's work, and you will never be full of the spirit so long as you are full of yourself. Some of you wonder how God can use you. I want to give you a a real-life example just from a few days ago. Josh mentioned the Lenten devotional. We asked a a handful of you across the, the church to consider writing a Lenten devotional, and... um. What was fascinating was that this was a very common explanation of a no answer. I'm not sure I have what it takes. What would I say? I'm struggling. Who am I to guide others? And and underneath that answer is an assumption that I need to develop competence. I need to be good enough before I jump in the game. There is something fundamentally flawed and anti-gospel and spirit-stifling about that kind of thinking. I'm not out to make you feel guilty if that's what you've thought. I'm, I'm trying to shepherd your heart in light of an Acts chapter 2 Pentecost spirit-filling dynamic and, and answering the question I think that is on our, all of our hearts. How do I access more of Holy Spirit power? Uh, how do I draw on the divine more so than I have experienced in my past? And I want to pastorally poke and correct this kind of thinking. When you think like that and you stay on the sidelines of ministry and service and personal engagement with others' lives because you only operate in your area of strength and that's not one of them, here's what's imbalanced. Here are the lies that you're believing about who you actually are and where your ability to do anything significant actually comes from. It's not your ingenuity. It's not your hard work. It's not your genetics. You see, what's 
wrong with that way of thinking is you, need, you think you need to attain to some level of godliness and a, achievement and success and um, freedom from struggle over sin and a peace in your heart and, and a, a victory before you can be used by God. That is a lie straight from the pit of hell. Satan would want you to think that and be ineffective week to week because you think, well, when I um, get to this level of maturity, then God can use me. And meanwhile, the church is filled. And I I don't mean GRC alone. The church is filled with ineffective, non-spirit-filled believers, followers in Jesus. Why? Because we have this anti-gospel attitude that I need to pull up my bootstraps and demonstrate competence and strength, and then God can use me. God uses crooked sticks to strike straight blows. God takes an empty earthen vessel of clay, brittle, fragile, and he fills it with all-surpassing glory in his treasure. He doesn't need smart people. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your genius ideas. What God calls for is humble, willing, dependent servants who say, I have nothing. You know what? You're right. You do not have what it takes to write a Lenten devotional. Neither do I. And we're not just talking about words on a paper or words that show up in your inbox. We're talking about words of life, right? Words that have the power to change, that have the power to impact our souls. You don't have what it takes to write that, nor do I. But that's not the point. And when we, when we come to this place of admitting it, that's when the Spirit's power is unleashed. There's something beautiful about the dynamics inherent to celebrate recovery. Every Wednesday night, 7 o'clock, food in the hallway, 7.30 here in the sanctuary for uh, two hours. There's something beautiful about those dynamics because those who come to celebrate recovery on Wednesday nights know on average better than the rest of us. You know what? I don't have what it takes. Uh, and uh, for some of them, it's, it's because in God's providence, they have crashed and burned and there's no more faking that I have it all together. That is a, a mercy of God. That is a grace gift from God to be able to say, okay, <laughs> pretense is no longer even on the table. Let's just be honest with each other. And, oh, you're messed up, so am I. You're a sinner, me too. Um, just yesterday in our leadership training class, we were wrapping up, uh, talking about a, a, the, the subtitle of the book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. People in need of change helping others in need of change. This is the walking wounded helping someone else who is wounded get to the tent for care. These are, this is um, fellow hungry beggars helping one another find the bread of life and be nourished. This is the church. This is not a place to put on our, you know, puff up our peacock feathers and act like we all have it together. That's, that's what turns people off the most about the church of Jesus Christ. Let's be real. We don't have what it takes. Self-reliance is the quickest way to stifle the church. You can't be full of the Holy Spirit if you're full of yourself. And if you're full of yourself, you're self-deceived. Because there's nothing much to be full of. <laughs> 
Let's be honest with ourselves and with God and say, I have nothing. But you have everything. Acts chapter 2 shows us this. An uneducated fisherman, Peter, goes from denying Jesus three times, shamefully. I don't know the man. I, I wasn't hanging out with him. No, not me. He goes from that shame three times to a bold and public proclamation of Jesus, probably knowing that he's going to get thrown in jail uh, the very next day or, or, or within the week. What changed? It absolutely was not that Peter suddenly put it all together, that he got it, that he figured it out, that he conquered his weaknesses and imperfections and failures. You know, he, he watched some YouTube videos on self-confidence and, you know, public speaking, and, and then he, he was ready to go. This was the same old uneducated fishermen with the same flaws and the same lack of worldly qualifications to do anything to impact the kingdom of God, ever. So what was different? He had the Holy Spirit. I think, if we could read between the lines, Peter crashed and burned. He was the apostle Jesus entrusted with some privilege, right? He, he was in the, at the front of the line, um, he was the one to speak up. He was a leader among leaders. And in God's providence, he was the one who said, Oh, Jesus, I, I, don't, I don't know who he is. I'm just here watching. I don't know what's going on. Shame. Peter, you think you had something to be proud of? Crash and burn. The reality is you're nobody. But I can use nobodies. <laughs> And Peter is among those waiting to be filled, no longer full of himself, because how could, how could he brag about anything? Yeah, I, I was the one who denied Jesus three times. Yeah, that was me. He was able to say, I'm nobody. Uh, just like Paul would later say, I'm the worst of sinners. But God uses nobodies quite effectively. And God uses the worst of sinners um, to change the world like he did the apostle Paul. How do you get the Holy Spirit? You get the Spirit. He's given to you when you place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, when you trust in humility and utter dependence. I cannot save myself. I am hopeless and helpless apart from your mercy, but you have given me Christ, and I embrace him by faith. And the Spirit is given to you in fullness. The Spirit is a person. You can't get half a person in your life. You either have the Spirit or you don't. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ, Romans 8, verse 9. That's how you get the Holy Spirit. It requires the humility of weakness and poverty and a recognition that what you most desperately need, God alone can provide, and he graciously offers it. His power is unleashed in you and me when we look like the apostles to God with utter dependence. What does that look like? It looks like being constantly in prayer. I know that's convicting for me. I spend far too much time doing and worrying about my calendar and, and um, sending messages than I do praying. But you know what? That betrays a sense that I need to do it. I need to operate in my area of competence. I, I need to demonstrate my wisdom, my strength. 
And God, uh, I'll, I'll get back to you. Whereas when we get to the end of ourselves, and sometimes failure is the best thing that can happen to us, I say, I can't do it. <laughs> God, you need to do it. I don't have the time, God. But you stand outside of time. You can make things happen. This is the secret, if there is one. This is the formula, if there is one, of the spirit-filled life that we would look to God for strength and not any so-called competence, that we would um, seek the glory of Jesus and not our own personal advancement, that we would put him in his proper place as king and throw away all the chasing after substitutes, fakes, like status, power, pleasure, and wealth. You are not good enough to be used by God, nor am I. We never will be. But that's irrelevant. So whether God's calling you to share the gospel with your neighbor or to go on a missions trip or to write a Lenten devotional, your stress, your distractedness, your inability, your lack of knowledge, it is a good thing. Because it will force you to say, God, I can't do this, but you can through your spirit in me. And so I'm ready. (laughs) Use me. Fill me. Jesus is the director. But the chair is empty. Ah, but he's left us his Holy Spirit. And we are the actors tasked with continuing to do and to teach what Jesus began. What greater privilege is there? Let's pray for his power. To be at work in us. Holy Spirit, come and fill this place. Come and fill us to overflowing. Show us, Lord, that in our weakness you are strong, that in our incompetence you are almighty, all powerful. Show us, Lord, that you're not looking for men and women and children who are special who rise above the rest. That, that's the message that, that's the water in, in which we swim in this area of the country, in this area of the world. Lord, uh, cure us from that disease of thinking that our competence, our money, our abilities, our experiences, our education mean anything, can make any significant impact. They're nothing unless your spirit is in us empowering us. Do that through Grace Redeemer Church, through each individual here, for the glory of Jesus. Amen.